Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. (laughs) Well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. Hey, Sherry. Hey, what? We've got a guest today. I know. This is going to be a really cool podcast. I love. It's going to be different, and we're going to explain why. But before we get to our guest, and before we explain what we're talking about, we are going to address a listener question. We've been soliciting listener questions for weeks now, and we've actually not done anything with the ones we've collected. So we might still down the road have an episode that's completely devoted to answering questions. But for the for the time being, we're just going to answer maybe one question off the top of episodes for a little while and see how that goes. That sounds fun. If a, if a listener wants to send a question our way, they can do that by emailing matt at soberandunashamed.com. And we'll have a link to that in the show notes. So I'm just going to read this and then you and I can respond. The question from our listener is, sometimes I wonder if it's hard to continue to hear so many of our stories every week, many potentially triggering for one or both of you. How do you keep going? How do you protect yourself from compassion fatigue? That is an excellent question. Do you want to take a stab or do you want me to go first? Well, I think that for me, I don't have compassion fatigue because each story is a different person. And I just really value that they're sharing with us. And I just think of them as being very brave. So I feel like I take, and maybe because I'm not an empath and I'm not saying that I don't care, but I think just me being able to separate myself from their story and their vulnerability and their honesty makes me feel like they're so brave. And I feel so proud of hearing these stories. And there's always just enough of a difference that it keeps it interesting. You know, sadly, everybody has a lot of similarities, but then sadly, there's a lot of um, differences with our relationships and our partners and their alcoholism that it just keeps it interesting. Not, you know, like I'm like, Ooh, I'm so interested, but interested as in, I want to help this person. Yeah. I would agree with everything you said there. I want to just highlight what you said when, when you referenced that you're not an empath, I think that's really important. I'm not either. I know people who are, I I don't think they could, could do what we do because you know, you absorb the stories more when you're an empath. And when you, when you turn off the zoom call or you stop the conversation, you can't let it go. And that's not to say that we aren't empathetic. I think we're both, yeah. we both, I feel like I'm very empathetic and I know you are, but we can also turn it off and, and turn back to our own lives and our own things that we're working on relatively easily. And I think that's a requirement. I think when we hear a story, so I mean, to interrupt, when we hear a story, it, like it motivates us and there is a, it doesn't trigger us to be sad. It triggers us to try to find a way that we can like rectify the situation. We can help move along this situation or bring it open to a podcast where we're saying these people aren't alone if their story is a little different. Yeah. I feel like it's a little bit more of a, of a motivation to keep going and keep working on this. Well, I feel like we are often trying to validate our own experiences And we're looking for what we've called on the podcast universalisms, ways that other people's experiences are similar or the same. And that's what one of the things that keeps driving me to try to figure this out. I mean, obviously, addiction has never been solved. It's been going on for hundreds of years. I'm not suggesting we're going to solve it, but I am suggesting that the research that's been done, the information that's out there is insufficient because if it was sufficient, we'd have fixed this by now. So I am constantly looking for you know, what's new, what are we learning, what's similar to our situation, what's slightly different. And so just that thirst for knowledge makes it, uh, keeps us away from compassion fatigue, I think. You know, we get lots of confirmation from people about things that we've experienced, those universalisms like I talked about. But one place where that confirmation falls short, we, we are blessed to be in, in communication and relationship with so many people that are so open and so vulnerable and so honest, but that openness and vulnerability naturally just kind of ends. Even when you're in a safe place, like the environments that we try to create, making them as safe as possible. Even when you're in a safe place, 
that openness and vulnerability tends to end at the bedroom door when we start talking about sex. And that's where people start to experience discomfort and an unwillingness to, to continue to talk. I am certainly not blaming anyone for that. I think that's natural. I think that that starts with the way that we are conditioned, at least in this country, um, you know, not to talk about sex and the really just abysmal K through 12 sex and reproduction education that we have in this country, uh, where we, we leave really that, that, that couple of hours of education we receive in fifth grade with more questions than we get answers. So I, I think we're just conditioned not to talk, but that certainly has been our experience. So whenever you and I wade into the waters on the podcast about sex and intimacy, we're going largely just off of our own experience. So one of the things that we've chosen to do today, I mean, you probably saw the title of this podcast before you hit play. So I don't think the topic's going to surprise anybody, but we're talking about the orgasm gap and addiction and connecting the dots that link those two. Cause I'm sure Many people looked at that title, orgasm gap and addiction. Okay, first of all, I'm not sure what an orgasm gap is. I know, I thought I it was a new no thing. I have no idea how it ties to addiction. Is this a new thing? <clears throat> well, it's not a new thing, but it's something that we're going to talk about maybe for the first time. And in addition to just sharing our own experience, I actually did some research for this. I know you like to tease me. Sometimes I can't even like look up big words that I want to reference and see what the definition is. But we did some serious research for this episode, because we don't want to just go off our own experience. We wanted to see what was out there in the way of scientific research about sex and intimacy and use the research to, you know, compare it to our own experience and what, what we do hear from people and try to kind of build this case for the link between intimacy, the orgasm gap and addiction, both as a cause of addiction and as a result of addiction. And so we'll get into all of that. And uh, like I said, reference some studies to do that. This is, there's a lot, this is a very meaty podcast episode because not only do we want to explain that, but we don't just want to complain about what we found. We want to explore what we can do to bring about change. And so a lot of these topics will be new to people, um, we're, we're referencing scientific research, and then we're also talking about how do we fix the problem? So there is a lot to this. Um, and to help us talk about what we can do and exploring how we can bring about change, we are going to bring in our guest. Uh, Kathy is joining us on the Untoxicated podcast. Kathy has worked in public policy advocacy for a social impact nonprofit for the past six years. And Kathy, we want your point of view because your specific area in public policy is of interest to us. You're not necessarily lobbying legislators and trying to get laws and, and statutes passed. And that's not where we are when we talk about affecting change either. We aren't even close to ready to talk about legislature, legislators. Your expertise is in building like collaborative networks and knowledge bases and the kinds of things that make policy influence possible. And I think that's where we want to go with what we're going to talk about today. How did I do as far as introducing you and your expertise? Does that sound about right as far as where you live in the policy world? Yeah, um, I think that sounds about right. And and I I, I think sometimes when people think of policy change, there can be an assumption that requires legislation, but sometimes policy change is policy and practice change within an organization. So for instance, the, the government agency that funds all the research around addiction, you know, is there a policy change within that organization that could be more supportive of this connection as an example? So yeah. Happy to have the conversation today. Looking forward to it. Excellent. Well, we're so glad to have you here with us. We're going to dive right into connecting these dots between the orgasm gap and addiction. Um, I, I want to explain the orgasm gap, and then I'll get deeper into explaining how it happens. That When I say orgasm gap, there is a statistically proven gap between the amount 
of orgasms had by men and the amount of orgasms had by women. I wish I had written that out in a nicer way so that I could have just read it, but, but that's basically what it means. Um, you know, when I think of orgasms and sex and how that uh, relates to addiction as an active alcoholic, the only connection that I could make between those two things was that I like to drink. And when I drank, I sure like to have sex a lot. Um, and I think that's one of those universalisms that we talk about. Not everyone, certainly, but I think especially um, for the, the males for whom we know their stories, uh, that's, that's a very typical way to feel. And um, so that, that's, that's what I knew back then. I know a lot more now about this relationship. When we talk about research today, I'm going to reference research only by date. We're going to say, okay, this research study was this date. This research study was this date. There is a, uh, a an associated blog post on our soberandunashamed.com website and blog that is going to go into much greater detail about these research studies and do a prof, prof, proper research citation. So if you hear, hey, you know, what's he talking about with that uh, research study from 2013. If you go to the associated blog post, all those details will be there. For, I'm not going to re read citations on the podcast because I don't think that would be very interesting. And we've got a lot to go through as well. Another little just disclaimer I want to mention off the top, the relationships that we're talking about and the research that we found is related to cisgender men and cisgender women in heterosexual and monogamous relationships. We are not in any way trying to be non-inclusive. We recognize that there are lots of different gender um, ways to identify and ways to represent. Um, there are people that are fluid with their gender and, and there are people that have different orientations and we recognize all that. The problem is the scientific research that's available has not been done largely on anything other than these um, you know, heterosexual monogamous relationships. So that's, and, and that's the relationship that Sherry and I are in, and that's our expertise as well. So we hope that there's more research um, that is more inclusive, but we just want to explain that we are not being intentionally non-inclusive. That's just what is available to us to talk about at this point. So disclaimers out of the way, let's talk about uh, K through 12 sex and reproduction education, which is because of federal funding for public schools right now, there is a requirement that that uh, public school K through 12 sex and reproductive education be based on a theory of abstinence only until marriage, abstinence only until marriage. And the two goals of abstinence only until marriage um, sex education are to prevent sexually transmitted infections and to prevent unwanted, you know, teen pregnancy, basically. That's the way it was when I was growing up. Is that what your recollection was from your fifth grade health class when they spent two hours on it or whatever it was, Sherry? Yeah, I feel like that was about it. And then just, we were separated between boys and girls and then girls talked about menstrual cycle and the changes that would happen with them. And then boys were in another room doing whatever they do. Well, I'm glad they separated <laughs> you because God forbid that a boy ever know anything about a, yeah. a girl's genitalia and vice versa. I mean, I would Poor hate for that to happen. For oh things. my goodness. <laughs> I mean, you couldn't allow that kind of crossover education. I think that our kids, they did have them combined because um, they did a family life unit. Now they're doing this family life in fourth grade and fifth grade and fifth grade is a little bit more about reproduction and um, puberty. Um, but they do them together. Yeah. So then it kind of takes away that embarrassment and stigma. Um, but it still didn't stop well, our boys and girl from being embarrassed. I think you've fully described all the progress that's been made yeah. in the 30 years between when you and I went through it and when our kids went through it. Kathy, how about you? What was, um, you know, middle school or elementary school, whenever it was sex education like for you, are we describing something you're familiar with? Yeah, um, similar. It was in PE class of all things, and sure. boys were on one side of the gym, and girls were on the other side of the gym with their respective same gender. Um, in the in the binary definition of that, um, and it was 
I mean, but, but it wasn't, um, I think you were saying abstinence only. I don't remember that part, but it, I mean, they did talk about the mechanics. So for, I was on the girl side, obviously. So the mechanics of a man getting an erection and all of that. And I was just mortified. <laughs> yeah. I think now, I think our kids didn't have that piece of it and they are leaving it to the parents and uh, we're in a fairly progressive um, public school district. So I was a little surprised. I don't know like what, who made that choice, but we had to have the talk with the kids. Well, there, there are, because they, they got like, a birthing video at least one of them did i mean because we've had four and they've all kind of filtered through i don't know what our youngest knows because he was a fourth and fifth grader during the covid days well we've so, talked to him but we've talked to him but i mean he didn't come with questions like our oldest boy did was like we had been on vacation and they do it a little bit throughout the week and he came back to the birth video and so he was like i don't understand any of this we're like oh i didn't know it was this week well i can tell you that what they do now is is not a great deal different than what they did when we were in school because they're not allowed to. The federal funding of the public school system is tied to sticking to this abstinence only until marriage requirement. And there is a lot of interest these days in comprehensive sex ed reform. A lot of interest. Sadly, like a lot of things that are politicized in our country right now, we're kind of split down the middle 50-50 on how people want this to go. A lot of the reason that there is interest in comprehensive sex ed reform is because there are a lot of people pushing for inclusive and you know wide-based, like let's talk about everything, um, gender and orientation uh, topics, as well as the intersex condition, um, talking about sex for people with disabilities, there's a lot of people pushing for let's open this thing up and not just make this about, you know, cisgender men and cisgender women having intercourse. And um, there is, while there's a lot of people pushing for that, there's also a lot of pushback. And so getting this federal funding requirement for abstinence only until marriage sex ed lifted uh, on a federal level is going to be very, very difficult. Mm. Um, and, and so there's a big challenge ahead of us, but there are a lot of people pushing, like I said, for comprehensive sex ed reform. The piece that would come along with it that I'm most interested in is that if, if we had comprehensive sexual education reform, we would also start talking about pleasure. And pleasure is a missing component from almost all public school sex ed curriculum. And I actually going to reference my first study. There is a study that I found from 2013 that'll be cited on the blog post in more detail that backs that up. That's not just me saying it. And I think the three of us on this call can can remember that uh, there was no talk about pleasure as it relates to sexuality when we were going through it. Um, it's really a you know what I've learned in doing research and and really having an interest in this topic for a few years now is that ignoring pleasure and sex ed that's not just like leaving the icing off the cupcake that's a big big deal um it's really a tragedy when we think about sexual intercourse and what's typically taught we think about penetration penile vaginal penetration and penile vaginal penetration really primarily is only a benefit to the boys out there um, and again, I'm referencing a research study from 2010 that, that references this. As a boy, when I was going through this, I, whether it was what I was taught in school or what I was taught from my friends, because the internet didn't exist back then, was that bigger is better, right? The, the size of your penis was the most important factor in whether your girlfriend was going to be satisfied or not, and how long can you last? So I know I, you know, couldn't do anything about size when I started to experiment sexually, but I certainly could think about baseball and try to ignore what was going on uh, below my waistline and, uh, and just try to make it last as long as possible. But that is not a good fit for how women experience pleasure. Uh, and we're going to talk about how women experience pleasure in just a second. So what that leaves girls, you know, boys are thinking bigger is better and I got to last as long as possible. And girls are thinking, what's the big deal? 
with this sex thing that I, I was told was going to be awesome. And am I doing something wrong? Because it doesn't feel totally awesome. You know, female sexual pleasure, uh, the pleasure center for females is the clitoris. We uh, another want to make reference to another, uh, not, a, not a study in this case, but a, a book that we, Sherry and I, are both very fond of. We've referenced it on the podcast before. We read it together. It's titled Come As You Are, and it's by Dr. Emily Nagoski. Um, and it was written, published in 2015. It's a, it's a really great book for explaining not just female sexual pleasure, but all kinds of things about libido and not just differences between genders, but how humans are different. You might feel something that someone else doesn't, and that's okay. It really clears away a lot of the stigma that's associated with, am I doing this wrong? What am I, what, what's wrong with me? Um, but one of the, the statistics that I want to cite from uh, Dr. Nagoski's book is that only 30% of women can achieve orgasm through penile vaginal penetration on a consistent basis. And when I you tie that in with another study that I found from 2010 that talks about the fact that women who can achieve an orgasm through penile vaginal penetration do so because the the of the proximity of the clitoris to the vaginal opening i know some listeners are like oh my god is this an anatomy lesson what is this guy doing at this point um but you know the clitoris is this little spot above the vaginal opening that's what we think of it is that's the external part but there's actually uh internal structures of the cl the clitoris that are underneath the skin um and they are close to the vaginal opening, and in some cases, they're close enough that they can be stimulated by penile vaginal penetration. But in most cases, 70%, in fact, they cannot be. So I'm blushing. How are you two doing? Thank you, Professor Matt. <laughs> so with, with this conversation about increasing um, the sexual education, would that be something that since you're considering pleasure, that would be something, it would be continuous. It'd be like, not just in fourth and fifth grade. Cause that, I mean, that was our most recent experience. It was like, you know, a little bit in fourth grade, a little bit in fifth grade with our kids, but it would be something that would be a continuous thing that would maybe like intersect with the health classes. Oh yeah. It needs to be more than a and couple think, hours, whether it's PE class, which was Kathy's experience yeah. or health class and or whatever. I, I think that our kids, um, you know, they're 20 through 12, they are very aware of the differences in every person as far as their sexual identity, how they, um, what pronouns they use. They understand a lot of this, but I think that it would be more encompassing if they had something, like you said, talking about disabilities. I think it would just make them a little bit more compassionate towards everyone. And and understanding and being okay with that something feels good for somebody, you know, I know, like, and they don't feel like an outcast or they don't feel shamed. So it would take a lot of that stigma and embarrassment away. Oh, absolutely. That everybody's different. I mean, I, I, like, I am so passionate about this pleasure topic. I think everyone deserves to have sexual pleasure. There's lots of research out there that talks about that sexual satisfaction is a major component to mental health. Now, I, I'm not citing any research about that today, but but it's prevalent out there. You know, we, we can't live satisfied lives in, unless we um, are making room for sexual satisfaction. And so um, not talking about, um, you know, people who have disabilities or, or different orientations, different genders is, it's it's just ludicrous, frankly. It's it should it's criminal in my mind, um, and so even with the the orientation and the gender that we're talking about, even with cisgender males and cisgender females, we're still seventy percent of the females we're leaving you out of the possibility of experiencing pleasure by what we're teaching you in school. So I think we've sufficiently indicted the public education sex ed curriculum. To oh, to answer your question directly, share yeah. I think it goes on through high school. I mean, that's when kids are experimenting. They're not experimenting in fourth grade. Exactly. Why do we why do we end all talk about this in fourth or fifth grade? So yeah, it needs to to go on certainly well through high school um, and be just a kind of a regular thing that you 
come back to and and talk about and and to Kathy's point earlier, you know, you being mortified uh, when they talked about these things in PE class, we want to get to the point where you're not mortified when you can you can talk about it, you know, the way I am. Like I said, I'm uh, I'm blushing about it, but that's only because of the way I've been conditioned, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm getting pretty comfortable with these topics. But anyway, um, so we've sin- uh, significantly pointed to the problem that exists, I think, you know, because uh, half of the country would never consider the kind of comprehensive reform that we're talking about. Um, and it, just to be really specific about that, when we're talking about gender and orientation and pleasure, there is religious resistance for sure. Um, and a lot of people, a lot of our politicians specifically, would say that this is the kind of conversation that belongs in the home with mom and dad doing the teaching. That's ludicrous. Mom and dad are never going to talk like this with their kids, especially not mom and dad like us who were raised the way we were. Exactly. Well, and then they're just missing the educational points of it. They, no one is as educated in sex, like, you know, like you're learning about this and we're learning about this unless you have an interest. But if you're just normal everyday mom and dad or just a single parent, I can't imagine how hard enough it is to find the time to have these in-depth conversations. But I mean, an educator is what they need. Absolutely. So we need to take this stuff seriously. Female orgasm is important. I think we've made that case pretty well, but the research proves it and goes even further and says that the single greatest indicator of female sexual satisfaction is orgasm. There are a lot of people who make the argument that you know, women can be satisfied by just closeness and non-orgasmic intimacy. And that's a component of it. And I'm not denying that. I never would deny that. But the research has proven that, and I'm referencing a study from 2016 specifically, that female orgasm is the single greatest indicator of female sexual satisfaction. And uh, I've got a, a study that I found from 2017 that's referenced in the blog post that says that male sexual satisfaction depends on participating in the orgasm of your female partner. Um, So when it's a one-way street, which is something that, Sherry, you and I have talked about that I I experienced for a long time when you were repulsed by me when I was in active alcoholism and even in early sobriety, and you wanted nothing to do with experiencing pleasure in our sexual relationship, it was very much a one-way street Um, I was the only one having orgasms and that was resulting in uh, a lack of sexual satisfaction for me as well. Um, So there is a a partnered effect there. Does that make sense when I explain it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You were really talkative earlier. Now I'm just getting a nod. (laughs) No, it it makes perfect sense. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't repulsed by you all the time, but I certainly didn't want to be intimate with you in bed after there was a lot of drinking and this was even before your active addiction days. Um, you know, I had just enough energy to sometimes get through the day cause the kids were young. And then, you know, I didn't make it a priority and, um, you always acted like you knew what was going on and down there with me. And I was like, fine, you know, I, I try to give you a little direction and you would get a little offensive. I think like, offended oh yeah because i learned in sixth grade from my buddies that it was <laughs> yeah. how big is it and how much can you think about baseball yeah i'm making the fist pumping motion i wish this that's was tv nice. instead of radio that's real classy yeah this is awful that i'm doing that um, sorry kathy we're, we're recording over zoom so kathy's witnessing this um but we will not be using the video that's for sure so okay so great so we're uneducated and we're unsatisfied off to a wonderful start. Mm, that doesn't do anything for your self-esteem. Yeah. I, you know, I know we've got some male listeners that are probably thinking, listen, I know how to deliver. And yeah, I, you know, I I certainly feel like I do now. And I, But I felt like I knew how to deliver when I didn't. Mm-hmm. That's what my response would be to that. And I'll tell you what, when Harry Met Sally wouldn't be the famous and popular movie that it was, if not for the the scene in the cafe when Meg Ryan's character proves to everyone that there's a lot of guys out there that don't know what they're doing. Right. I think everyone remembers the fake orgasm scene in the cafe. Great part of that movie. And maybe you're the exception, but the, 
research proves that there is an orgasm gap between men and women. And it's nothing to be ashamed of. It's something we definitely need to, to start talking about, though. That's for sure. So I want to make one more connection because one of the things that we talk a lot about on this podcast and that we write a lot about on the blog is how important self-esteem is to recovery from addiction, both for the drinker and as well as for the loved one who has a lot of recovery work to do of their own. We have to feel good about ourselves or we can't get better. For the alcoholic, if we don't feel good about ourselves, if we don't have self-esteem and self-confidence, we are much more likely to relapse and we're much more likely to get into uh, an addiction to begin with. So there's a preventative you know, component to self-esteem as well. If we feel good about it, not arrogant, not cocky, you know, not um, boastful or uh, narcissistic, certainly not. Um, but we just feel good about ourselves, feel good about who we are and what we're doing out there in the world. Uh, then we are much less likely to get wrapped up in an addiction and much, it's much easier to recover from one. So there is research that we found recent research from 2019 that connects delivering and being a participant in a female orgasm for a male brings self-esteem to that male. So it's not just sexual satisfaction but it's self-esteem as well. And I can just say from my own personal experience, everything, all the research that I found, and it isn't like I just cherry picked and I just pulled out studies that prove my points. I looked at everything I could find and everything that I could find proved the, the, connection, the connecting of the dots that we've talked about. And this has all been exactly my experience. The more emotionally connected and physically intimate that we are, that is satisfying to both of us, Sherry, the better I feel about myself. Not like, you know, go down to the bar and brag to the guys that I just, you know, delivered with my wife, but just internally, like, ah, uh, kind of a satisfying feeling. Um, so uh, let's see, where are we? So the, the self-esteem, we've talked about how critical that is to addiction recovery and prevention, and there is a connection between sexual satisfaction and self-esteem. Um, wanna be really careful here, and I'd like to bring you in on this part of the conversation, Kathy. We wanna be really careful not to in any way blame the loved ones, blame the spouses in an alcoholic relationship and say, hey, you know, if you would just have more sex with your husband, uh, he wouldn't have become an alcoholic or he'd be able to recover. That's not what we're saying at all. Um, but there, there is a, uh, I don't know if it's, a, if chicken or the egg is the right way to describe this. There is an interrelationship as, you know, as we said, Sherry, as I started drinking more and, um, you know, I was more repulsive to you, you were less interested in sex. So then you were less satisfied that weighed me down, made me feel less, uh, self-esteem, made me feel less good about myself, made me drink more, right? Not your fault, but that happened. The more I drank, the more the less I thought things were going to happen that were going to be mutual in the bedroom. And it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. I know that has been our experience. Kathy, what what are your thoughts on on that? Is that uh, talk about you know? I, I don't want to make you go anywhere you don't want to go. But um, how would you respond to that contention and the experience that Sherry and I have? Yeah. Um... I definitely think you're onto something in terms of the connection. And, and when I think of my relationship with my spouse, you know, we've been together for almost 30 years and had a very satisfying sexual relationship, um, you know, for the first half of our marriage or so. But I, I think the, the challenge for us was my husband just wanted sex way more than I did. And, um, so there are definitely things like the little, um, caresses you give one, one another as you're passing each other in the bathroom or the kitchen or, or wherever, where uh, to me, I, I like those little intimacies. I think those are the kinds of things that build kind of the relational capital all week so that when you, when you do make love, 
you're already feeling connected, which for me, I need to already feel connected to and, and trust you in order, um, you know, to fully go there and, and enjoy it. But my husband tended to respond like if he did something like that, he, let's say we were in the kitchen and he, and he passes me and caresses me or kisses me behind the neck or what have you, if I had responded, then it would have become a, well, you know, who cares about dinner? Let's go fool around. And so over time it, it taught me, like I grew up in the generation where you weren't supposed to be a tease. That was like the worst thing you could possibly be. And so if you do anything that is sort of, um, might lead a man to think that you want to have sex and then you don't deliver, that's being a tease. And so I learned early in our relationship that if I responded to those kind of small little intimacies all week, he took them to mean he was getting lucky. And if that's not where I wanted to go, then I needed to not respond. And so the hard part is that meant over the course of many years, you know, I'm sure on some level, he probably felt rejected by me. And on some level, I felt that sense of loss that we didn't have more of those intimacies that we had early in our marriage, because there was always such a, a blowback if I didn't want to drop everything and go fool around. Um, so I think that was kind of an accumulation of things. And then, um, and then just over time, you know, while, like I said, he was probably on some level feeling some sense of rejection from, from him, from me, I was also feeling like I'm being re reduced to a vagina and that's my only value to this relationship. And that gets tiring too. And it gets tiring feeling like no matter how much sex you give somebody, it's not enough. And you're, um, especially if you get to the point where you're, um, contributing more sex than you want or are comfortable with. It starts to really feel like a violation. So I think that sense of disconnect, I can definitely see that potentially, I don't know that it contributed to his alcoholism, but I think the rejection um, he might've felt could have. And, um, and then obviously, as you said, once he became an alcoholic, you know, not, not super sexy to be around somebody who smells bad and you know, is doing things that are hard to respect. So. I love that you talked about, you know, giving more sex than you necessarily wanted or were comfortable with. That was definitely our experience. And this brings us to a really, what I think is a really important point. There is a rejection that's inherent in, in consent, a rejection that's inherent in consent. And what I mean by that is it's, I think any listener would understand where you, Kathy, or you, Sherry, when you're when you're agreeing to sex that you're not necessarily interested in, how that can be damaging on your side of it. The point that I don't think is natural or assumed is that that is also damaging to the person with the higher libido, the person that's asking for the more sex and receiving it because of all the dots that we just connected. If you're not being sexually satisfied. And let me tell you, I, I got to imagine every, every relationship, every spouse feels the same way. I can tell, you know, whether Sherry's into it or not, whether she's pretending to be into it or not, or, or, you know, I can, there are just tells, and I guess I don't need to go into any more detail than that. But when I can tell that this isn't your favorite thing to be doing right now, then um, that leaves me increasingly less satisfied. And with, again, lower self-esteem. And this, this concept of there is rejection inherent in consent is, like I said, that's not natural. That's not something that people just assume, but it is important. I, I think it's a big factor in addiction, again, prevention and recovery. Again, not blaming the spouse. The other, the other caveat I want to mention, we talked about how we're talking about cisgender men and women in heterosexual monogamous relationships. I also want to make it very clear that we understand that the libido imbalance goes both ways. There are certainly relationships where the female has a higher libido and more interest in sex than the men. Now, I think the, the experiences that we are talking about, the experiences that we are had are in the, in the majority in a pretty drastic way, but uh, there are cases where it goes the other way. And I know from having 
conversations with people in alcoholic relationships where the female has more interest in sex than the male, that there is a rejection inherent in that consent as well. So it definitely goes both ways. Um, okay, so we've established what the orgasm gap is. We've established uh, that the lack of education in K through 12 schools is a leading contributor, but that it carries on through life. And we've, we've talked about how important uh, orgasm is to sexual satisfaction and how satisfaction, how important that is to self-esteem. The question that we have now is, what change can we affect? Um, I believe that for the purpose of this discussion that we're having here today, talking about comprehensive sexual education reform in K through 12 schools is just too big of a hill to climb because of the political barriers that we've talked about. I, I know, I know for a fact that there's lots of people working on that and I encourage them to keep working on it. That's just not the thing that we are going to work on. What I'd like to look more at is what can we do to educate adults? So some things that hit me off the top of the head, Kathy, are, you know, it, can we do PSAs? Um, you know, as we've gone through COVID, we've seen government spend money on uh, PSAs about how important the vaccine is. Um, is that someplace we can go? What about requiring therapists to have certain training so that therapists that are dealing in relationships or especially therapists that are dealing in sexual functioning are required to do some pleasure education. You know, is that something that we can impact through public policy, government funding on research projects, stuff like that? What, what are your thoughts on, you know, where, where can we go from here, which is basically from zero as far as starting to lay that groundwork that is something that you're familiar with? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and you know, typically when you start to think about um, a wicked problem like this, it's complex, it's, um, it has a lot of facets to it. It involves a lot of parts of our community and our society. It helps to start with some understanding or or some articulation of of what do you think the hypothesis is and then see if you can go about you know finding some way to to prove that out in some way so some some sort of like baby steps or or small tests you know people do in the beginning is it you know i, I think there's been talk of like do we survey the echoes group um, to get a sense, or maybe even both shout sobriety and echoes, just just to get an initial gut check? Like, you know, is this just your idea and and I it resonates with me, or is are we seeing kind of universally across both groups um, some validity that this is resonating as a component to their addiction and the challenge in recovery? So that that that's an example of like what could be a baby step. Another one could be sometimes you'll have an organization that is willing to to try something. So let's say there's a a recovery group and in shout sobriety could be it. Do you do you try to test your idea through a strategy in that organization and measure the results? Did we see things dramatically improve or at least it looks statistically significant, in which case now we've got um, a hypothesis that um, is showing some validity. You know, do we go try and get a bigger piece of research that could then inform that public policy or that training or that whatever? So some of it is, you know, how do you how do you get that kernel up front? How do you get clear on what's your hypothesis? And then what's a baby step you could take to kind of prove out whether there, there appears to be something there, there, as they say. Okay. So that's really interesting. So, so we, you've referenced shout and echoes. We have um, within our nonprofit, within the work that we do, we have for the high functioning alcoholics in early sobriety, we have a group called shout sobriety. And then for the loved ones, for the spouses, we have a group called Echoes of Recovery. And I have always thought that those two groups are maybe too small 
to be scientifically significant. But what I'm hearing you say is we could do a pilot study, though, that maybe it isn't scientifically significant. And frankly, I'm not a scientist and I'm not qualified to dot all the I's and cross all the T's to conduct a proper scientific study. But we could do a pilot kind of a thing that might provide enough data to inspire someone to do something on a larger scale. That's what right. you're saying. It, I mean, it could it could start out as something as simple as a survey. Yeah. Um, and then if if it seemed like you got enough of a response that, hey, there might be something there, who knows? You know, you you know lots of people in the recovery world. Is there a, a rehab place or a, a group or something beyond your group that might be willing to run the survey or or the whatever the way you're capturing that information with their population and are you and then do you see similar results and if so you know then you start to build enough um there to suggest okay there, there might be this might warrant a piece of research um you know that the government funds or, or some other nonprofit or agency the second part of what you suggested was you know kind of not not just a trial survey but a trial implementation of something right could that be as simple as we've referenced several times and i think you're familiar with as well emily nagoski's book come as you are could that be as simple as let's have a reading group within shout sobriety and echoes of recovery anyone wants to try this we're going to read a chapter a week and we'll get on a video call and talk about how it's going so, so, you know, like a typical reading group, except for ours won't serve white wine and be held at noon. Um, book club. Yeah. Reading group. Book club. That's what yeah. I'm calling it a reading group. A Shout book club. Yeah. God, I can't even get my terms right. But yeah, <laughs> like a book club around that book and see what kind of change it inspires. Because I, one of the things I can tell you, Kathy, I think the couples that we work with, not only are they not talking to us about their sex and intimacy problems, they're not talking to each other either. So well, it's very Reading vulnerable and even to your partner to admit, I'm not getting what I want. I'm not feeling satisfied. And we are coming off of this, you know, we're coming into sobriety. And that is a really huge thing to conquer. Now I'm just going to add fuel to the fire. I mean, think how resistant I was for a long time. Yeah. Even like, like, I'm sure that going back into the podcast, I would have already been completely embarrassed, ran out the door, didn't want to have this conversation. So I must say, and, and our listeners that have been with us for a while, will know, will notice that this is by yeah. far the most comfortable you've ever been talking about this stuff. So that's great, Jerry. It is. And I, I mean, I would add to that, that again, I think sometimes and, and maybe this is a, a part of the conversation or a part of what you're trying to measure um, because if I were to add my hypothesis to this, I think there's a, there is, um, a, a short, there, there's just a way of thinking about intimacy sometimes. And I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say it's men, but it's, it's obviously not always men where sex equals intimacy. So, you know, the battle my, my spouse and I have always had is he's like, I need sex to feel close to you. And, and mine is I need communication and, and connection to feel close to you. And so that definitely became a chicken and, and the egg um, to the point where later in our marriage, when our, I think our kids were in high school, he finally, we finally did meet with a therapist where he finally, you know, said, I need, I need sex more often. And that there, and this gets back to your why therapists need to be trained too. Cause she's like, you know, not all of it has to be, you know, really in-depth lovemaking, it could just be quickies. And so I knew at the time that wasn't really going to work, but I, I gave him his quickies because again, I think sometimes there's this, yes, there is the sexual desire, but what, what you're really desiring is that intimate connection and sex alone in at least for me, doesn't do that. And so trying to trying to put this band-aid on it of just like, oh, let's just throw in some quickies, that is not solving the fundamental problem that that intimacy has been fractured, especially in an addictive marriage. Um, 
that sex, more sex alone, and even pleasurable sex isn't going to solve it. Like you need to be building back up those little intimacies. And I think you both have even talked about it in your experience. How do you build back up some of that intimacy that isn't, you know, A to Z, okay, you know, I touched you here. So now we're going to go have sex, but just intimacy for connection's sake that builds that, you know, kind of filling your tank, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I couldn't agree more with everything you're saying. Well, that's, that's the, um, when we talk about the rejection inherent in consent, you're, I mean, you're just, you're making that case. Well, and going back to the fact that most women penetration doesn't make anything it and going back to Kathy, cause I, I have had those same thoughts about how my body is just being used. I mean, I have thrown those words in Matt's face that I am just a hold of you. I'm just a vagina. All I can do is give you sex. And, you know, I, I offer nothing else. So then that therapist just is reinforcing the feeling and just dismissing you as the spouse that needs that connection. Didn't dare ask you what you think you needed when you heard exactly. his comment. Yes, exactly. And no surprise adding more quickies didn't last very long because it's not satisfying. Like, yes, he's getting more sex, but he's not really getting the intimacy and connection with that's them right. Because you're not getting that through a quickie. And I'm certainly not having an orgasm through that. So yeah, 100%. Well, that, it, it felt like a violation from that therapist, you know, and that, that ties back into the, just the lack of education. Um, he probably left that therapist appointment thinking, okay, I'm going to get what I want. And you thought I'm going to give him what I want. And little did we know, it's really actually just doing more damage to the, to the emotional intimate relationship. No question. This stuff's so fascinating to me. So, uh, so let's talk a little bit more about what we can do about it. Um, I love your suggestion of a pilot research product project and also a pilot, you know, fix it project. Like, like let's try to implement some things. Where, where do you go? So you've got the pilot where it, I think you, you started to talk about this, then you could go to potentially people who fund further research, whether that is a government entity or a private foundation and say, here's my data. Does it have legs? Yeah. So there are, um, the national Institute for alcohol abuse and alcoholism, I think is NIAAA. They fund I think the majority of research um, related to alcohol addiction. Um, there's another one, substance, Sam, uh, substance abuse and mental health, something, something. Um, so there's a those are both on the federal level, yes. Yes, correct. Okay. So they the they fund a lot of you know the bigger research around addiction, and and that is often but not always done through higher ed institutions that have strong research components to, to them. But a, a lot of times an interim step before that is, um, you know, the, the philanthropic community. So foundations, funders, they are often willing to put money behind a problem that they care about um, to kind of build the case, so to speak, for that larger government agency to potentially put money behind it. So sometimes that might be the step before the step. And I, I think when I did a quick Google search, when uh, you, Matt, and I were kind of initially talking about this, I want to say the Ford, you know, Betty Ford Foundation, they do a lot of, um, it sounds like they might fund research around addiction, not necessarily in its relationship to sex per se, but just to give you an example of who are those foundations or who are those organizations that fund research around addiction or recovery health or what have you, they might be that next step once you've kind of had, hey, I have this initial idea, we tested it, it seemed to kind of play out, can we talk further? There's also another group that I, I think I mentioned to you. Again, I don't know them very well. I, I'm just impressed with the research that's on there. That's called the Recovery Research Institute. Um, 
their website seems to have a lot of really good information. They seem to be willing to go places beyond just um, what you tend to typically see in addiction. And what I like even better is the findings they get out of their research, they then turn around and try to package it in a way that the larger public can hear it and embrace it and understand it, whether that's infographics or, you know, um, you know, like tiles you would put on social media to share a point. So they seem to be good about that part of the communications and, you know, changing hearts and minds part of it as well. Excellent. You know, it strikes me that we are talking about an intersection of two topics that do receive research dollars and research attention, but to my knowledge, not together. And what I'm talking about is there, there is research taking place about sexuality and gender issues. There is research taking place about addiction and addiction recovery, but they're typically separate. So for instance, when you talk about research that would take place in higher education, the Kinsey Institute at Indiana University is world-renowned for their sexual research that they've done and continue to, to conduct. Um, and, and there are you know, higher ed uh, colleges and universities that are known for their research on addiction. If you were, if you were pushing for something like this, which direction would you go? Would you try to get a sexuality research person to look at the uh, intersectionality with addiction, or would you try to get an addiction person to look at the intersectionality with sexuality, or would you do both? Yeah, um, great question. I, you know, the I think what you're bringing up is another really important piece about public policy and advocacy, which is who are your partners, potential partners in this work? And so what you're bringing up is there's, there's these two research fields that right now don't really connect, but potentially should connect because it, it could uncover a major source of what causes addiction in the first place or, or what harms um, recovery. So I'm always a fan of go find the coalition of the willing and so you go reach, you start reaching out to folks. And sometimes it's, you know, you're not necessarily going to call a university to start with, because who do you even know <laughs> who to talk to? But, you know, so that Research Recovery Institute, you know, could you reach out to them and find out, hey, this is what I'm thinking. Do you know any researchers who are doing work in this place? You know, do you have the ability to connect me? What I have found in the public policy space for these wicked community problems is people are very willing to help and very willing to connect, connect you if, um, if, if they have an interest in support of, you know, kind of where you're going with it. So I think some of it is who are those partners, you know, that, that Ford foundation, you know, when you think about, um, recovery and, and public policy and advocacy around addiction, MAD, Mothers Against Drunk Driving, you know, comes to mind for me. They probably don't do research in this particular area, but they might know researchers who do, you know, so, you know, can you start connecting with some of your partner organizations? Um, Faces and Voices of Recovery is another one. I'm really impressed with the work that they do because they're trying to knit all these, um, recovery groups together into a larger movement so that we can advocate collectively for better outcomes. So I think that's part of it is, you know, beginning to beginning to think of who might be the, these partners, how can we, you know, can we reach out to them through their website or their organization? Does anybody know people there who can kind of make that warm introduction? So you start to, um, uh, they, they're more open to having a conversation with you about the, the research and where we think it could go and then who might be interested in that research. That's, that's kind of how, how we start. Who are those partners that can help us? In your introduction, I talked about your expertise in building collaborative networks, and that's exactly what you're talking about here. It's, the answer isn't either or, the answer is all of the above, basically. Yeah. 
because you may try some organizations and they may not respond, but you start connecting with folks who think, hey, I, I think you're onto something. Have you talked to so-and-so at, at this place or so-and-so is doing interesting research? You know, the, the hard part is there's so many higher ed institutions. There's so much research out there that there's no way we could know all of the research being done. And so how do you begin to tap into um, that, that wider knowledge base about who might be doing research that maybe it's not exactly in this, um, this intersection between these two worlds, but they might be close and they might be interested in going there, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that's great. I love this. I feel like we've got a roadmap now. I feel like we start with you know, a pilot uh, survey research project, pilot research project, and then also a pilot, let's try something and see if it works. We take the data, whether it's quantitative or qualitative that we get from that initial, you know, pilot work that we're doing. And then we try to find, you know, a coalition of the willing collaborative networks who want to take it to the next level. And then, you know, with the ultimate goal being, if the, the theory that we have, if the hypothesis that we have is proven out by the research, now we're talking to regulatory agencies about what kind of requirements can we include in therapist licensing to make sure that we're talking about pleasure and that the education is being delivered. We're talking about public service announcements. We're talking about infographics, social media campaigns, these kinds of grassroots things to get the word spread. Um, I got to tell you, I, I brought, we brought you on here, Kathy, to um, kind of give us the rundown. And I thought this would be an academic process. I thought you would tell us some things that we could do that, that were far reaching and, and unachievable. But everything you've talked about is stuff that we can do on a grassroots level and, and really impact at, you know, have an advocacy role in, in getting policy addressed. So I, I'm, I'm fascinated by that. Yeah, and and again, as I you know shared earlier, it may not require a piece of legislation. It 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 might just require good research that demonstrates the advocacy around um, or efficacy, I should say, around um, you know those who are trained in substance abuse counseling or that sort of thing. Um, being able to have those conversations and being able to coach their their recovery folks around this idea and 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 maybe even again sort of learning more about what was the role of sexual intimacy in that rejection you know perhaps in their addiction because again i don't i don't think that's talked a lot about but there's probably a piece there too yeah i think that just when you said that the first word that popped in my head is that i think is part of the shame cycle yeah because there's embarrassment behind it, uneducation perhaps behind it. So therefore that leads to shame. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's not talked enough about. In fact, I think what we should end this podcast on this episode on is a charge to our listeners. Um, I know we've, we've dumped a lot of really weighty stuff on you and I, I, I appreciate for everyone who's listened all the way to the end, the next time the, the challenge that I have for you is the next time that you're at a social gathering, when the clitoris comes up and that's being uh, conversed about, I challenge you to impress your friends by making the connection to addiction. <laughs> I mean, one of the things, if I can add, you know, a potential call to action to your listeners, some of them may already be working in research. Some of them may already be working for universities that have an addiction department. Some of them may already be connected to those government agencies or those foundations who might fund this. So if you have somebody who's listening, who's thinking, well, I think they're onto something, you know, I, I hope you'll reach out to Matt and share, you know, the, your connection to potentially being part of that coalition of the willing. Um, so that if, if in this initial research or whatever it is uh, we end up doing, bears out that yeah there appears to be a connection here you start to leverage this community to help crowdsource what does that coalition of the willing look like who does have contacts of people in this research space 
who might help take the research further where it really can begin to influence how therapists are trained or, or and or other other things that may come from come out of the research. So that's fantastic, Kathy. I was going to end this episode on a bad In cocktail party joke. Thank you for pulling us out. And you ended with a real call to action. No, that is really good. Yeah, I mean, it really takes is. a village, right? You yeah. never know who somebody knows. That's right. And you never know who's going to be listening. And we want to thank you, listener, uh, for joining us for another, a different, but hopefully an educational and informative episode of the Untoxicated Podcast. And Kathy, we want to thank you for joining us as well. Always a pleasure being with you, Alan. It's, it's uh, fun and interesting to see where this might go. Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, we're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org. No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to soberevolution.org. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.